And before we get started, since the kids are with us today, I want to give you some instructions, okay? Kids, you should have a blank piece of paper, and on one side of it, it says Psalm 125.1, okay? And here's what I want you to do on that side of the paper. I want you to draw a picture of a mountain, okay? This morning, we're going to talk about how those who trust in God are firm. You have one? Good. Draw a picture of a mountain, and while you're drawing, here's what I want you to do. I want you to listen to me, and at the bottom of your page, I want you to put a check mark every time I say the word mount or mountain, okay? We'll see at the end how many times I say mountain. Uh, so draw a mountain and listen for the word mountain, and about halfway through, I'm going to tell you to flip over your page. I've got a different picture for you to draw later, okay? So work on your mountain now, and the rest of you, if you want to draw a mountain, I would love to see it afterwards, all right? Why don't you take your Bibles and open to Psalm 125. Psalm 125. You know, there are some songs that we sing now that we will not sing in eternity. You thought about this? That there are some things that we sing and we confess now that we won't need to sing and confess in eternity. Back in the mid-1700s, a man named Robert Robinson wrote some words that most of you are familiar with that we sing now. But these are, it's an example of some words that we're not going to sing in eternity. Probably words that most of us resonate with. He wrote this, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It's from the hymn, Come Thou Fount. And I think if we're honest, this is a feeling that most of us are familiar with, right? We have felt it. Prone to wander. And the reason I say that I think most all of us can probably resonate with this is because we all have temptations we face. The, the pull of the flesh is strong, Right? The influence of the world around us is significant. The work of the enemy is always ongoing. He's persistent. So we all have these moments when we're tempted to trust ourselves more than God. Because we think, I know what God has said, but this just feels right. I need this. Or there are times when we decide to give in to the demands of the culture, to accept things because, after all, nobody likes to be on the wrong side of history, quote-unquote. So these are common temptations, temptations to go away from God because of this pull. And these are temptations that go back a long way. Think all the way back to the very beginning of your Bible, the very beginning of mankind, Adam and Eve, this was the temptation. The temptation to trust themselves over trusting God. If you've been reading along with us, we've just finished Deuteronomy. And in the book of Deuteronomy, God's preparing his people to go and to take possession of the land that he's going to give them. And so as we read through Deuteronomy, we have his promises. We have the law being given. He's giving instructions for what they should do in the land or for what they should not do when they come into the land. 
But there's one thing that's repeated several times in Deuteronomy, and we find it in several places in the Old Testament. God tells the people, as you go into the land, be careful. Be careful not to be influenced by the other nations, right? He tells them to be on guard because they will be tempted to trust, to follow, to worship those gods of the other nations. See, God knows their nature. (laughs) He knows our nature, that we will be tempted to follow other gods. We're constantly being tempted to trust other people, other systems, instead of trusting God. And it goes back to that very first lie, again, Back in the Garden of Eden, the the question that was asked, Satan asked the question, did God actually say, did God actually say you should do this or not do that? And this is a common temptation that we have to rationalize or minimize the things that the Bible says with thoughts like, surely, have you heard this or have you thought this? Surely God didn't mean for those things written in that Old Testament or the old, somewhere in Scripture, surely he didn't mean for those things to really apply for us today. Surely, surely that's different. Surely my situation is an exception. There's so many common ways that we try to minimize parts of the Scripture that are countercultural. In every case, it comes down to this. Do we trust that the Lord's way is best? Do we trust that he's good to his people? Do we trust him? And while we can make a long list of reasons why it's hard to trust God, here's what we need to be reminded of. God can be trusted. And this is what Psalm 25 is all about. It's a song about why God should be trusted. It's a song of assurance for those who trust him. It's a song that I hope will remind us and encourage us that it's better to trust the Lord than to trust in anything else. So if you have your Bibles, Psalm 125. Hope you'll follow along as I read. Hear the word of God. A song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hand to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you've been with us, then you should be really familiar at this point with this title that we see above the psalm, the Song of Ascents. Remember, these are psalms that have become common travel songs, songs that people would sing as they were on their annual trips going up to the festivals and feasts in Jerusalem. They would sing these songs, and because they sang them on their way to Jerusalem, it makes sense that a number of the songs reference Jerusalem. They're about Jerusalem, or in this case, Mount Zion, which is 
the mountain where Jerusalem sits. So we can imagine the people walking through the hills, going up to Jerusalem, getting glimpses maybe of the city, getting glimpses of the mountain as, as they're going. Have you ever driven west? At some point you see the mountains. Flat, 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 and then there's the mountains out there. And they're walking and they see Mount Zion and they're singing together. They sing, verse 1, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As they walk, they're confessing this. It's good to trust the Lord. There are benefits for trusting the Lord. But we've already acknowledged that there is this common temptation to trust in other people, other things. Let's think about sometimes when it's hard to trust the Lord. It can be hard to trust the Lord when you're in a place or an environment where it seems like no one else is giving any thought to God. It's hard, isn't it? Maybe this is your story. Maybe you come from a family where you're the only Christian in your family. And so your family isn't concerned about what God says or about what the scriptures say. Which means when we're all together, there's this temptation to just do what they do operate the way they operate, even if it's contrary to what God would want. Maybe for you, the temptation is not in your family. Maybe for you, the temptation is in, in your workplace because you don't want to be seen as different from your coworkers. So you're inclined to just do what they do, go along with their conversation, go along with what goes on after work. Or maybe when you're at work, you're tempted to cheat a little or lie a little just to make yourself look a little better. And what's clear when we do that is that we're not trusting God that he's going to provide for us if we do things his way. Let me give you one more. Maybe you're struggling to trust that God's word is true and that should be the standard when what the Bible says is so very different from what the world is telling us is good and right. There's this temptation to trust society and to believe that their opinion is more authoritative than the word of God. And that's the kind of context that Psalm 125 is written for. See, as we come to the psalm, what we're going to see as we get into, especially verse three, is that this is a people who are living under a wicked rule. So the environment of the time and the place where they're living is one of, of a wicked influence. But the psalm, is, it's a song of encouragement to people who are in that kind of situation. I know you have the influence. I know you're being pulled this way. It's better to trust the Lord. Okay? So in the first three verses, we have some reminders or some assurances that those who trust in the Lord will be cared for by the Lord. can be tempting to not believe that, can't it? Because we see, if I do this, people will say this. Right? But the psalm assures us that there are greater benefits to trusting the Lord. Look at verse 1 again. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. 
Now, here's where I want you to let your imagination work a little bit. Let's try to get this in our minds. We need to picture a mountain. And I want you to think about how easily mountains are moved. Or rather, how unmovable mountains are. And in the scriptures, mountains are often used as imagery for things that are stable, things that are permanent. And Mount Zion, this is not just any mountain. This is the mountain where God has said, I'm going to allow my presence to dwell. So for the people of God, Mount Zion is strong, it's secure, it's stable. And the verse says, those who trust in the Lord, you're like Mount Zion. Unmovable. And this is what we're called to believe, that we are most stable and most rooted when we're trusting him, living his way, believing that his commands are best. There is the temptation to think, if I do this when everyone else is doing this, I become vulnerable, right? There's less stability, less support. But if we think about that, then we're forgetting what it means to have the Lord on our side. And the scriptures use this kind of imagery to describe God. He's a rock. He's a, a foundation. He's stable. He's secure. I can't help but think about one of my favorite Psalms. Psalm 46 uses the metaphor of a river being like God. It says, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. And he says this, talk about the city. So we picture Jerusalem. And he says, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And I, I love that imagery that the city is glad and the city is strong because God is in the midst of her. And what this reminds us of is that when we trust God, when we're in fellowship with him, when we're in his presence, that's when we have stability. That's when we have security. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved. And we have the same kind of language in the New Testament. These images that tell us there's stability, there's security in those who trust in Christ rather than in the world. We have Jesus described as a foundation, as a rock. I want to read to you from 1 Peter 2, and just to hear this passage in the context of this, that in Christ we are most stable, in Christ we are most secure. Peter says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And he says this, so the honor is for those who believe. Those who trust in him, the honor is for you. But for those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We've been called to trust God. And he reminds us, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Friends, if you're in this category, trust him, right? You've been brought into his family. You've been called his child. You've been forgiven. Why would we not trust him? The only hope we have for eternity is trusting Christ. We are secure in him now and forever. We see that in the verse. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. His security of you is not temporary. So this is the first thing we see, this assurance. That those who trust in the Lord are unmovable forever. And then, in verse 2, that those who trust in the Lord are like Jerusalem, fully guarded forever. Now kids, hold up your page. I want to see your mountains. Do you have a mountain? Let me see it. Wow. All right, turn your page over. You've got another, here's another picture to draw, okay? This time I want you to draw a city in the middle with mountains on either side of it, okay? A city in the middle of the page with mountains on either side of it. Look at verse 2, church. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. So get the picture of Mount Zion in your mind. Remember that Jerusalem sits on top of Mount Zion. And while it is a good-sized mountain, it's not the tallest mountain around. In fact, the Mount of Olives, familiar with this? Right next to Jerusalem, it's taller than Mount Zion. There's mountains on at least three sides that are taller, and so they, they stand over Jerusalem, providing this natural protection, this barrier or wall that can guard them from attack. And what the psalm says is those who trust in God are like Jerusalem, and God's like the mountains that surround Jerusalem. So hear the encouragement. The safest place you can be is in trusting the Lord. And the only place where you're promised to be guarded is when we're trusting God. What are we talking about? Guarded from what? What do we need to be guarded from? Protected from? That's right. Evil. The power of sin. The attacks of the enemy. This is why we pray, keep us from temptation, deliver us from evil, right? We need this protection. And so this verse should encourage us. Because you're getting tempted to sin. You're getting influenced by the world. And you think, I don't know how much of this I can bear. But the scripture says, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. God is the guard. Which means even when we aren't, rather, 
it does not mean that we're never going to sin, right? It doesn't mean there's never going to be temptation, but for those who are in Christ, we have this assurance. We are not slaves to sin. Sin isn't master over us. And while Satan may have some influence, he does not have authority. It's so similar to what we talked about a few weeks ago. These Psalms, I've told you, they're very similar. And if the past few weeks have felt similar, that's, that's intentional by the psalmist and by me for leading us through them in this time. We need these reminders. Psalm 121 says, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. If we trust the Lord, we can be confident that he keeps us. He guards us. You want to hear a New Testament version of this? Remember the words of Jesus? John 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. God is the guard. He's the keeper of his people. He's like the mountain surrounding Jerusalem, which is a great picture, right? Aren't you glad that God inspired creative people to give us these images? And what the verse goes on to say is that the guard is temporary. Or, whoa, no, it's forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. We can trust that he will keep us. So we have these assurances. We've seen two already. First, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, unmovable forever. Second, those who trust in the Lord are like Jerusalem, fully guarded forever. And then in verse 3, those who trust the Lord are protected. Evil will not rule forever. It's similar, but look at verse 3. The scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. So let me, this is where we kind of get the context, where we get a sense of what's going on in the situation. And we don't know if in this situation they're being ruled by another nation that's evil. Or we also know that there were leaders of Israel that rose up and were wicked. So whether this is a, a Gentile nation ruling over them, like in the exile, or one of their own ruling wickedly, we see that there is this authority. We see the word scepter. Think of that, that rod that a, a king holds. We're told that this is a, a scepter of wickedness. So the people are under this wicked rule, at least for a time, but there is a promise it won't last forever. And that's, it's not super clear in our translation. It says the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land. And what's implied here, like I said, it's not super clear in our translation, is that it's there. There is the scepter of wickedness that's ruling, but it won't rest. It won't stay on the land allotted to the righteous. So the people of God, those who trust in the Lord, are being ruled over by the wicked, but their rule is temporary. It shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. It won't stay. It won't remain. 
And this is good news because we recognize we are in a similar situation. We're in a world that's ruled by wickedness. Even the best of our leaders can be classified this way. Because none of us are perfect. And the temptation is just to give in to the ways of the world. But what we see at the second half of verse 3, he says, The rule of wickedness will be temporary, lest the righteous stretch out their hands and do wrong. And what we see here is that God understands our temptation. That the longer we're under this influence, the more tempted we're going to be to give in. So he's reminding us that the rule of wickedness is temporary. Again, God's guarding and protecting his people. We get similar promises in the New Testament. God spares his people. And so while we live with sinful flesh, while we live in a sin-filled world, we have promises like 1 Corinthians 10, 12, and 13. See if you can think about, think about verse, thir- verse 3. Under this rule of wickedness, but it's temporary, and God will deliver us out of it. 1 Corinthians 10 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. God is faithful, and he will not let you to be tempted above your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Do you see how that's kind of a New Testament version of what we saw in 125.3? There is a rule of wickedness, but it's temporary, and God will remove it lest those who are good do wicked things. God is faithful. He will provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. The temptation is to start to believe things are so heavy, I don't know that I can do things God's way. It's too hard. His ways are too demanding. The pull of the world is too strong. The good news is the temptation will not last forever. Your problems are not forever. At the very least, we know that one day we will see Christ and he will deliver us from this body of death. And so I think if there's a secondary theme to this psalm, the primary theme being trust the Lord, the secondary theme is persevere, right? It's not forever. You can make it through. Psalm reminds us that God is with us. He's protecting us. I thought of the encouragement that Paul gives at the end of 1 Corinthians. Therefore, brothers, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Because of Christ, we can keep doing the things that God has called us to do. We can keep striving for him, knowing that he has a plan for us. Easy enough, right? Just trust him, right? Easy. Well, it's not always easy, is it? Living a godly life in a sin-cursed world, it's hard. Trusting God in the midst of everything around us, it's difficult. And I think verse 4 acknowledges its difficulty. See, the first three verses are these encouragements to trust God. Verse 4 is a prayer that God would bless those who are doing the hard work of striving to trust him. He says, do good, O Lord, to those who are good. 
to those who are upright in their hearts. And again, it seems like the context of the psalm is these people living in a hard situation, wicked rulers creating a wicked environment. The temptation is to give in. And I love that the psalmist, he tells them, trust God. You're, move, you're unmovable as you trust God. You're unshakable. You're surrounded. You're protected. God, would you help your people as they strive to do this? Right? It's this acknowledgement that it's not easy. Now, let me just pause, and I want to speak to the keen theologians in the room. Because when I read verse 4, you got a little, you had a little squirm. Because you immediately thought about Psalm 14, which Paul quotes in Romans 3, where he says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands and seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Right? You're thinking, okay. One psalmist is saying, be good to those who are good. Another psalmist is saying, no one does good. Okay, let's reconcile these things. Here's a second question you might be asking, something that might have come to mind as we read verse 4. Is this verse suggesting that we live in some kind of works-based favor system? That somehow we can earn the favor of God based on what we do. So we say, God, do good to those who do good. And we're thinking, I want to do good, so God will do good to me. Is that how God operates? Those are good questions. Thanks for raising those questions. Let me try to answer them. First, it is true that on our own we are sinners, and no good we do comes from us. And I think that those who do good in verse 4 are the same group who are mentioned in verse 1 as those who trust in the Lord. Does that make sense? Those who trust in the Lord, those are the ones who are called good because as we come to God through Christ, we're granted his righteousness. Ephesians 2 says that we walk in the good works that he has ordained. Those who trust in the Lord, those who are his, those are the ones who are described as those who do good. And so it's not a works-based salvation. It's a prayer that God would be good to his people because that's what he has always promised to do. It's an Old Testament version of the New Testament promise. We know that for those who love God, Romans 8, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God works all things for good for those who are his. And the Bible's full of these promises. He provides, he protects, he preserves. And the verse is a prayer for God to keep his promises. God, you have said you will be good to your people. Do good to those who do good. Do good to those who trust you. It's a prayer that I love to pray for you, church. That as you draw near to him, he would bless you. That he would give you your daily bread. That he would forgive your sins. That he would guard you from temptation. That he would bless you with every spiritual blessing in Christ. This is a good prayer. Do good, O Lord, to those who do good and to those who are upright in their hearts. What's the ultimate sign of his goodness to us? It's Christ, isn't it? That Jesus came died to bear our penalty. And the primary way we trust him is by confessing our sin, admitting our need, and putting our faith in his finished work. And if you've done that, if you are in Christ, then the assurances of Psalm 125 are yours. You are like Mount Zion. You're secure. You're like Jerusalem. You're surrounded and guarded by God for all time. 
and the rule of evil will not last forever. God will deliver us from this world of sin. These are things that are sure for those who are in Christ. But there's also a fate for those who are not in Christ, for those who have not trusted in God. We see that in verse 5, this warning. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Can I tell you one of my biggest fears as a pastor and as someone who just loves the church? One of my biggest fears is that there are those who for a time seem to see God clearly and who profess to trust him. But over time, it becomes clear that they were never truly children of God. It's what Jesus talks about in the parable of the soils, isn't it? Mark chapter 4. You have this farmer sowing seeds and says, these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. Sobering. That there are some who for a while trust the Lord, but over time it becomes clear that they are not actually his. And in the end, all who aren't his enter judgment. And that's, that's exactly what we see in verse 5. Contrasted with those who trust God, verse 5 says, those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. And it's sobering because we have this sense that they were with us and then turned aside, right? This is First John stuff. They went out from us because they were not of us. Verse 4 is a prayer that God would bless those who trust him. Verse 5 is a warning against those who may not truly trust him. God will judge those who don't trust him through faith in Christ. And this is a warning that I hope we all hear and consider. I think the context of the psalm is familiar to ours. We are a people living in a wicked place. By large measure, our leaders don't fear the Lord. Our world is pushing us to deny Christ in the ways of God. And friends, it, it, it hurts me to know that there are some who I know who for a while professed Christ, and yet now they are more comfortable following the ways of the world than the ways of God. It reminds me of what 1 John says, chapter 2, this warning, don't love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, anytime I read that verse out of context, I want to I say this. There's a sense in which God has, not a sense, God has created a good world, right? He has created things that we should enjoy and love. There's people around you that are part of the, the world, in a, a sense, that you should enjoy and love, and today's a beautiful day, and we should go out and enjoy it. So don't hear First John think, man, I love being outside. 
No, he's saying the system of the world, the ways of the world. We can't love the things they love. So there's a difference between loving and enjoying the blessings of God and giving your heart to the world, trusting the ways of the world more than God. And the psalm is assuring the people of God about the blessings of trusting him and warning us if we would fail to trust him. And the consequences are eternal. It's a warning we need to hear, a warning we must share with others. But the main thrust of the psalm is that God is good to those who trust him. Maybe this morning you've come in and you feel like you are getting crushed because you feel the tug to trust other things. Because I've tried trusting God and it just doesn't seem to be working. I hope the psalm is an encouragement for you that God is good to his people. If you're in Christ, you are like Mount Zion. You are secure. You are like Jerusalem. You are surrounded and guarded by God for all time. The rule of evil won't last forever. We have one more verse, or part of a verse. First, can, can I see your city surrounded by mountains? Can you show me? All right, I'm going to get a closer look at those in a bit. We're going to pass those around during lunch, maybe. In God, we're secure. You are like that strong mountain. You are like that city surrounded on either side. And the psalmist ends with a prayer of blessing. Peace be upon Israel. And I love this because once again, we have an acknowledgement that there's a need for peace, right? We don't need a peace for blessing. We don't, uh, a blessing of peace. We don't need a prayer for peace if everything's peaceful. He's acknowledging things don't feel right right now. God, would you give peace to your people? Maybe you recognize the overlap between what we're seeing here and what we saw at the end of Psalm 122, where he said, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security in your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord, I will seek your good. Both of these psalms are asking for God's peace on his people. And we know that we will have true and lasting peace later, but God promises peace even today, doesn't he? And this is a good prayer. God, would you give me peace in the midst of temptation? Peace in the midst of the frustrations of my life? Peace in the midst of disobedient children and sinful spouses? Peace in the midst of global unrest and political absurdities. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. This is a good prayer. Would you give us peace as we wait for eternal peace? God, as we trust in you, would you do what Isaiah says in Isaiah 26? You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That, that just circle that one on your notes. Make that one that you would memorize this week. Psalm 20, or Isaiah 26.3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts 
in you. We see this connection between trusting God and peace. I began with the confession, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Do you know the next lines of the song? Here's my heart. Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. I think it's similar to the theme of our psalm. We're prone to follow wicked ways. Would you keep us? As we trust him, we can have the confidence that we won't be shaken. He will guard us. He will protect us. He will be good to us. He will give us peace. Let's pray together. God, where would we be if not for the assurance that we are safe in you? God, I've tried trusting myself. It leaves me wanting. (laughs) I've tried trusting those around me, and I have good people around me. But even still, I feel the insecurity. God, I pray that you would help us to recognize that as we trust in you, we are kept, we are secure, we are surrounded, we are guarded, we are protected. And God, we recognize that there are people around us who are looking for that kind of assurance. Would you help us to see them and to recognize their need and to share the hope of Christ with them? We thank you that good is promised for those who trust you, but we also recognize that there is judgment assured for those who do not. We don't want to take that lightly. So while we live in gratitude for the salvation we received, would you also make us faithful to share this hope with others? Thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the one we can trust. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.